Good morning, Ridge. Uh, for those of you who don't know who I am, my name is Joey. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, so it's uh, great to be with you this morning to share God's Word. So if you have your Bibles with you this morning, will you please open them up to the book of 1 Timothy, uh, chapter 3, verses 8 to 13. That's 1 Timothy, chapter 3, verses 8 to 13. We will uh, be continuing our journey through the book of Timothy. Um, and tackling that particular passage on deacons. Uh, yeah, but so before we get cracking, before uh, we start, how about we open up in a word of prayer? Dear Lord, we just thank you so much for this opportunity that we get to come and hear from you. We just pray, Lord, that the words that I speak this, this morning will not be my own, but will be yours. That, Lord, anything that I have to say that's on my own, that will fall on deaf ears, but that your word would come through and just challenge us where we need to be challenged encouraged where we need to be encouraged and lord it's ultimately at the end of the day that we would have a greater picture of who you are and a greater picture of your love for us we ask this in jesus name amen so what we're going to be doing this morning is we're going to be uh, tackling two major sections in this passage um the first one is going to be on deacons um who are deacons why do we have deacons and uh what do deacons do and on the other aspect, quite ob, if you don't see it in the passage, but we're going to be tackling um, assurance of salvation, all right? And we're going to see the link in that a little later, but those are going to be the two sections we're focusing on. And in their own right, they deserve their own sermon, but we don't have that luxury this morning, so we're going to be racing, okay? So bear with me. Uh, we, I won't go over time, but we're going to be trying to uh, tackle these two sections and really unpack them well in a short period. And the first thing we've got to ask ourselves um, when we think of deacons is why do we have deacons? Why? What's the point of having deacons. Well, when we see in the early church back in Acts, we see the elders and, and the apostles, they were doing ministry, and all of a sudden the church grew rapidly, started to grow really, really quickly, and the elders and the um, apostles were overextended. They were called to preach and to pray and to do teaching, but they started finding themselves having to dive and dwell in a variety of different ministries that were needed. And as a result, they had their fingers in too many pies, if you will. Um, they were doing stuff, but not doing it effectively and kind of neglecting what God had really called them to do. They were running out of time to focus on the preaching and the praying. And this comes to head in about Acts 6, verses 1 to 7. We see that a group of Gentile men come to the apostles and they lodge a complaint. They say that you are looking after the, the widows of, that are Hebrew, but you are forgetting the Gentile he, uh, widows. You are not looking after them. And whether this was an intentional act by the apostles or not, they realized that they had made a mistake in taking on too much work. And they say, okay, what we got to do is we got to appoint pastoral assistants, if you will. We got to appoint people who are going to help us in doing this. And these uh, people were seven men who would come along and they would look after the variety of different ministries so that the apostles and elders might be able to focus on what God has called them to do. You following me so far? 
All right. And what's important for us to understand is that in this passage, that this passage is descriptive and not prescriptive. What I'm meaning is it describes an event and it's not telling us how we as a church need to have deacons. Okay. Because if we take it as prescriptive, then we've got to appoint seven men who are going to look after widows who happen to be Greek. That's not going to go down well. Okay. So it's not necessarily prescriptive in telling us how and how they should function, but rather it gives us a biblical principle in which we can apply. So here at, at the Ridge, we don't necessarily have deacons, but there's going to be a point where our three elders, Mark, Raj, and Matt J., kind of realize, man, there's just so much work for us to do. We're not really being able to get to it all. And, we, and we're trying to do it all, but we're starting to neglect other ministries and things that we really feel passionate about. We need to appoint other people that can help us to do this. And so it would come then we would choose men and women who would be able to fulfill this role. So that brings us on to the idea of why we have, but who are qualified to be deacons? Who are the people that are meant to be deacons? Well, the passage um, that we are about to read through, and I'm just going to read it this morning because we don't have time to unpack each and every uh, single principle. I would absolutely love to do that, but we don't have that time. Um, But we're going to read through this passage, and we're going to see the qualifications of those who um, are to be deacons. Now, The danger as we read through this for us that are sitting here this morning, the danger is that we can look at these qualifications and be absolutely put off about the idea of being deacons. We can go, man, I don't want to be a deacon. Do you see how they have to live? That's crazy. They have to be sober-minded. They can't uh, be a lover of money. They mustn't be addicted to too much wine. They have to be temperate. Uh, They have to be a one-woman man. I I don't want to roll like that. And so there's this kind of danger that we put this, the, the standard of deacons and even elders on a pedestal and we go, we don't want to be them because we don't want to live like that. But the reality of the matter is that the standards that deacons and elders are held to are the same standards that you and I are held to as well as Christians. We're expected as Christians to be sober-minded. We're expected as Christians to be temperate. We're expected as Christians... Um, to have self-control. So all these things we're about to read are the same standard in which you and I are held to and which we are meant to strive towards by the grace and help of the Holy Spirit that's in our lives. So don't look at this as, man, I don't want to be a part of this. This is too much for me to handle. But rather, let's trust that the Holy Spirit will mold us over time into the men and women that are described in this passage. Okay, so let's read verse 8 to 13. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. It goes as follows. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to too much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold uh, the mercy of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first and let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, uh, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be a husband of one wife, managing their children and their households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing 
for themselves and also a great confidence or a great assurance in faith that is in Christ Jesus. So I would love for us to be able to tackle each and every single one of those principles and talk about it and unpack it so we would understand it well, but we just don't have the luxury of that this morning. But I would like to point your attention um, to to, uh, verse 11. It says this, uh, their wives likewise must be dignified. Now, it's translated, the word wives is translated wives, clearly, but it can also be translated woman. Um, the Greek word is exactly the same word, and the way we would be able to distinguish between the two would be context. We have similar words in English that where they, meet, they sound the same, but they mean different. There and there, for example. They, they mean different things in a certain context. And so would this particular word here that means woman or wives. Now, it's translated, can either be translated the wives of deacons, or it can be translated Woman, woman deacons. Now, if it's translated the wives of deacons, we find ourselves in a bit of a pickle. And the reason why I say we find ourselves in a bit of a pickle is because elders, they are seen as the highest form of church leadership, of local church leadership, but yet we don't have a similar standing for elders' wives. Now, why would it be that a lesser form of leadership in deacons that they would be held to a higher standard and expected that their wives are held to a standard. So logically, it just doesn't quite make sense. You're following me here. And so there there are plenty of more arguments to argue that that there's a fact for women deacons, but how we as a church hold to this is that that would be better translated as women deacons. Now, you might be saying, Joey, you're changing the Bible here, but most of your, most of your um, Bibles have a little footnote that say it can be translated that way as well, all right? I'm, I'm just pointing that out. So it's probably better. So therefore, verse 11 then is probably additional requirements for a woman deacon. So this was, Timothy, uh, Paul was writing to Timothy so that he might know when appointing different deacons that he, when looking at a woman deacon, should focus on these particular things. Why? Because if you look at those, those are traditional, if you will, in a general statement, um, sins that women generally struggle with more than men. Not saying that men don't struggle with these, just this is more what women struggle with. And in verse 12, it would be the same way for men, because it's talking an additional requirement for men. These are more things that men struggle with, it's things like sexual purity, etc., etc., things that men struggle with more than necessarily women. All right, so those are who deacons are meant to be. And then lastly, under the deacon section, what do deacons do? So when Rog, Matt, and Mark sit down and, and start discussing um, they need deacons, they're going to start discussing for particular areas which are in need. You see, we in the New Testament, there's no uh, described role for deacons other than they have to serve, because deacons means serving. Again, and, and something that we all call to do as Christians are to serve in this area, so that's what they are required to do. So when they start to appoint particular people to serve, it's going to be in the areas in which they need help. There's no set things like they have to open up the church. 
They have to be involved in the setting up of communion. There's none of that in the New Testament, but it's just beware we need help with particularly. All right. Okay, I want to turn your attention to verse 13. And what we're going to do is we're going to now focus on more of um, assurance of salvation. We see in verse 13 here it says, For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also a great confidence in the faith or a great assurance in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So one of the rewards that deacons get to have in their serving faithfully and serving well is they get to have this great confidence in their relationship with God, knowing that they know God and God knows them. But while that might be something that is a, a reward and focused on for those who serve well, it is also something that we as Christians can also understand, that we have a relationship with God. We can know that we are saved. I remember when I was uh, uh, growing up, I grew up in a, a Christian home. My grandfather is a lay minister, so I got to hear all the Bible stories. I, I lived with him, so I got to hear all the Bible stories. I used to go to church. I used to be one of those really good kids that knew all the songs, and he was Anglican, so when to stand, what words to say. I didn't need the book. I could do all of those kinds of things. But it wasn't until I was 14 years old um, that I, I got saved. I was sitting down doing my homework, um, looking out the window, so I'm probably not doing my homework very well, uh, but looking out the window and I saw this beautiful sunset. So it must have been an evening and I just remember like all the stories that I had heard growing up, all, all the stuff I had heard about God, my grandfather preaching and all the songs that I had sung, there suddenly like a penny just dropped in my mind and I knew it was real. No one was talking to me about it. I just suddenly knew God was real, that someone had to create that, and God was alive and real. So being that good Christian kid, I got down on my knees. I asked God to, to forgive me of my sin. I acknowledged that Jesus was Lord, and I said, Lord, please, uh, I said, Jesus, please become the Lord and King over my life and, and rule in my life and, and help me to, to live for you. And uh, after that, I was on this amazing high. It was, I was so excited. I knew God. God was real. This was great. And it was for about three days until I remember I intentionally sinned. I can't remember what it was. I think I lied to my mom or I cheated in a test. I don't know. Probably because I wasn't doing my homework properly that I had to, had to cheat in my test. But I remember intentionally sinning, whatever it might have been. And I went from this emotional high of going, man, I, I know God, I'm right with God, this is awesome, to like the pits. This guilt just kicked in. And in my young understanding, I went, well, if being right with God means I feel like this, then feeling this guilt and after I've sinned probably means that I'm no longer right with God and God no longer loves me and, and, and there's something wrong here. And so what I did was I got down. I remember in my room, I was facing my cupboards. Uh, they always had to be closed. I didn't like them. Anyway, um, and, I was, and I was down on my knees and I was just, and I said, Lord, forgive me of my sins. I'm so sorry that I, I promise I will never do it ever again. I probably did. But I promise I'll never do it ever again. And you know what happened? While God would have forgiven me, he definitely did. That emotional hide didn't come back. 
that guilt was still there. And what happened was, I soon realized that if I did good things, that this guilt would go away for a bit. If I read my Bible, if I was good to my parents, I was nice to my mom, I told her she was beautiful, you know, wada wada wada, this guilt would disappear until I did something wrong again. And it was this roller coaster ride of up and down, up and down, and it never really, really ever stopped until I was about 80. It got to such a point that I read the Left Behind series, I don't know if any of you have read it, but the kids' version, that I had read it, whether you believe in the rapture or not, and I, and I would come home, and my parents, we, had, we stayed on a five-acre piece of land, so I'd see my folks' car, and I would walk home, and my parents wouldn't be there, and I'd be like, oh my gosh, I have been left behind. The rapture has happened, and I'm so nervous, and I find my parents, and there'd be the sigh of relief. It really was that bad, until I was about 18 years old, when I realized that I knew that I could know whether or not I was saved. So we're going to look at a passage this morning, just one. Again, we don't have too much time to unpack this, but uh, 1 John verses two, uh, chapter 2, verses uh, 1 to 3. So if you have your Bibles, 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. If you know, want you to know where 1 John is, go right to the back. You have Revelations, then you have Jude, then you have 3 John, 2 John, and 1 John. All right. Um, so they're right, it's right near the back. In the meantime, while you're turning there, let me start to read. We're just going to read verses uh, 1 to 3. It says this. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this, we know that we have come to know him. I want to read that again. And by this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. So John starts off this particular section by going, my little children. You see, he is out of the 12 disciples. He is one, the only one who does not get martyred. He's the only one who doesn't get killed. He he dies of old age. And so John is coming to the end of his life. He is really, really old, and those he is writing to are a lot younger in the faith than he is. So he sees himself as their spiritual father, if you will. And, and like any father who cares deeply about the, his children, he gives them advice so that it might better benefit them. And he goes, I'm writing to you so that you may not sin. I'm, I'm writing this so that you might benefit from not going through the trauma and the hardships that come with sin because it will be beneficial to you to be more right with God. But like any parent that's sitting in this room, just because you told your kids some beneficial advice, do this, it will help you. Do this, it will be better. Act like this because it is right and it will benefit you in the future. You know that they're not going to listen, do you? You know that there's more likely there's going to be a chance where they will not listen to you and do make their own decisions. And, and John, perceiving this, says, but if anyone does sin, if anyone does make mistakes, when you do sin, I want you to be reminded that we have an 
advocate in Jesus. We have someone who's going to defend us on our behalf, and his name is Jesus the Righteous One. He has come and died for our sins. He has died on the cross so that our sins might be taken away and so that we might be right with God and so that he will defend us and stand on our behalf. And he's qualified to do that because he is righteous and because he has died for our sins. So the next time you mess up, be reminded that we have someone who's defending us, and his name is Jesus. Now, that's verses 1 and 2 in a nutshell. Um, so keep that in mind uh, as, we, as we tackle verse 3. Let's look at verse 3 again. Let's read it one more time. It says this, And by this we know that we have come to know him. We can stop there. And by this we know that we have come to know him. John wants these uh, people that he's writing to to understand that they can know whether or not they are saved. You see, what happened was he was writing to a group of, um, a group of people who were in serious doubt of whether or not they understood the real revelation of Jesus. Because there was this group called the Gnostics. I'll explain a little bit later. It just sounds complicated. But a group of Gnostics who were coming around saying that we have received a higher revelation of Jesus. We have received a higher revelation of God and you don't really know God fully. As a result, you haven't quite grasped him, but we do. And they were preaching this convincingly to, to a point that these people were starting to worry whether or not they knew God. But John is going, you can know that you know him. But before we even tackle that a little further, what does John mean when he refers to knowing? Because that's important. You see, you could be like a pre-14-year-old Joey and know a lot of facts. Is that what you're talking about? Because I, I knew all the Bible stories. I knew the, how, the, David, the David and Goliath story. I knew about John. I knew about Joseph, particularly because my name's Joseph, so I love that one. Um, so I knew all those stories. But is it the factual things, knowing that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, that he was baptized in the Jordan River, that he was tempted 40 days uh, by Satan, and that's recorded in Matthew 4. Is that what we're talking about when we're talking about no? No, it's not. What John is saying here is that to know Jesus is to know him personally. To know him as your advocate. To know him as the one who has died for your sins. To know him as the Lord of Lords. To know him like that. To, like we can have a personal relationship, so we need to know Christ. And John says we can know that we have that relationship. We can. But How? How can uh, we, we know? Let's read the end of verse 3. He says, uh, And by this we have come to know him. We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. If we keep his commandments. You see, the Gnostics were a group of people that, as I mentioned earlier, who were coming along and preaching a gospel saying, we have received this higher revelation of God and, and we know him and you don't know him. You Christians don't get him. We do. So you need to listen to us. You need to listen to what we have to say because we truly know him. The problem was on this end, we had the Christians saying they knew him. And on this end, we said another people that are saying they know him. And John was saying, we can distinguish between the two by the way they live. You see, the Gnostics on this end, while they were preaching and knew a higher revelation of God, 
They weren't living it. They weren't obeying God's commandments. They weren't living the way Jesus had taught when he was here on earth. So the question that John is saying is, we, the question that we have to ask ourselves is, who knows, those who don't obey or those who do? And I think it's pretty obvious to us, it's those who do obey clearly had the full revelation of God. And for us, there's this uh, need for us to understand that we can know God. We can know that we know him. We can know whether or not we are saved. You see, in Romans uh, 10, verses 9 and 10, it says, So if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You will. Simply believing and confessing that Jesus has died for your sins that he has lived and you believe in him and you repent of that, of your sins, you will be saved. Simple as that. that would have, that's all a 14-year-old Joey did. And when I took that faith and when we have taken that step, we are led and gone and experienced a love that is never fading, that never goes. Uh, in, in the prayer room a little earlier, we were praying before the service, John read a um, a passage in, in Romans, uh, Romans 8, verses 30, uh, 37, uh, sorry, uh, yeah, 37, no, 38 and 39. It says this, For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God for those who are in Christ Jesus. Church, we can know that we are saved if we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead. We will be saved. And what I'm suggesting here, I am not saying that we have to do good works in order to keep our salvation. No, because remember what John said in the beginning, that when we mess up, we must be, rem we must be reminded that we have an advocate with Jesus in heaven who defends on our behalf, who's taken away our sin. I'm not saying that good works keeps that, but rather what, I, what I'm saying and, and what John is saying here when he says we can know that we are saved by those who keep his commandments is saying that when we are saved, which is finished and done because of what Jesus has done on the cross for us, what stems out of that and what flows out of that is good works. Good works doesn't earn us salvation, but what results out of salvation is a change in you and me that starts to result over time and we get better and better at it as we become more and more like Christ. Good works start to come out of that. Do you get what I'm saying? Okay. <laughs> because we can know that we can know him. We can know it, we can know it, we can know it. And there's a life-changing thing that happens when you know you are saved. You see, what a 14-year-old what a Joey did after he messed up for that first time is I try to constantly earn favor with God. Constantly try to earn salvation. And so for the next four years of my Christian life, my aim was to make sure that I was constantly getting in the right books with God and never focusing on anything else. But when, once I realized that I was saved, 
that nothing could take that away, that neither height nor depth nor angels nor demons nor nothing could separate me from the love of God, then I could start to focus not on earning something for me, but glorifying Jesus in the way I live. There's a slight change in, in our motive for working, our motive for serving. It's no longer to earn salvation, but to glorify the one who has earned it for us. All right, let us pray. Dear Lord, we thank you so much that we uh, can come before you this morning um, and that we can know that we know you. If we have believed in you, if we have confessed uh, with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, that we are saved. I pray, Lord, um, for those who are struggling with this concept, who are struggling with the idea of, of knowing that they know you, um, that you would just cement it in their hearts, that you would help them to understand that they can know that they are loved, that they can know that you love them no matter what. Would you help us, Lord, to to become uh, better Christians, to empower us with your spirit so that we might live lives that are good as we look at those characteristics of deacons, that we might um, be able to strive towards those. We just want to thank you so much, Lord, for your son, Jesus, that he died on the cross for us, and that no matter what, our sin has been taken away. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen.